April 10th. Our message this morning is called Priestly Duty. In recognition of the fact that our brothers are headed to India today, uh, another family is headed to Romania Tuesday, uh, brothers in May are headed towards Peru, and between now and October, the Vincents are traveling all over the United States in preparation to move to Indonesia. Uh, this will be a bit of a special service. Today is a baptism service. Today is a mission sending service. Today will be a dramatic encounter with the living God service. Amen? Do you want to do church as usual or would you like to have an encounter with the divine? So Nick would like an encounter with the divine. How about the rest of you? When you want your team to score in a football game, you don't sit on your hands. You jump up and down excited. Do you want an encounter with the living God? I think too often we've been too refined. The church of the living God has often decided to quietly fold our hands, sit on our salvation, and play nice while the enemy ravages lives. I have no intention of playing nice with the enemy. Are you ready for our first serious scripture? This is Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter. In verse 26, say there when you are there, Ezekiel 22, in verse 26, her priest do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. Somebody say holy. Somebody say common. Common. The problem is not distinguishing between the holy and the out and out satanic. It's the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between unclean and clean. They shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. I could think of three very easy summaries this morning to ways in which the church at large is profaning the name of God. We treat the word of God as common when it is altogether holy and righteous. When we think of the word, we're all comfortable with the idea that it is God-breathed. But when it becomes a minor footnote in a sermon to be held on equal footing with something a psychologist said or a cute little analogy from the pastor's life. We have treated the Word of God as any common story. This morning I want you to know that every syllable of this book is anointed with power. It is a double-edged sword, one that will strike the enemy and also pierce your own heart. We will be preaching from Leviticus 9 this morning. And it is powerful. The second way in which the church is often profaning the word of God by refusing to distinguish between clean and unclean is in the selection of the priesthood. First Timothy 3 says so clearly what you must be to be an overseer in the house of God. But we have decided if somebody smiles if they're shaped a certain way, if they can present verbally in a certain way, if they have certain economic credentials, 
then they make good pastors despite what the word says. This morning I say the end of idolatry needs to be here for the house of God. We don't need to lift up pastors as better than another pastor, prettier than another pastor, smarter than another pastor. We need to lift up the almighty word of Jesus Christ. The third way that we intend to uproot is regarding the power of God. Every church can quote 2 Timothy 3. We say a church having the form of godliness but denying its power. And yet no church seems to believe that that verse is speaking about them. I have stood in the midst of pastors quoting that verse that as far as I'm concerned are the definition of it. But they were sure it was about someone else. This morning, we want to restore the Word of God to its proper place in our hearts and minds. We want to restore and, and reverence the, the order of priesthood that extends from Jesus Christ Himself. And we want to rightly wield the power of God. Can you say amen? amen. Then go with me to Leviticus 9. There will be one more way in which this sermon is unusual today. It will be unusually short Because I want to baptize people today. I want to lay hands on my friends today. I want you to lay hands on us today. We are a family. Beginning in Leviticus 9, starting in verse 1. On the eighth day, somebody say eighth day. day. What an unusual topic. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Begs the question, eight days from what? The scripture is completely silent on the issue. We know that we've had seven days of a holy convocation before this, but we don't know on what day any of it began. Assuming that they met on a Sabbath to discuss the things of the Sabbath, and then we went seven days, we would be at another Sabbath, and then the eighth day would be a Sunday. It's interesting to note, and I'm not going to spend very much time on it because it's not a problem unique to this body. I have been called a dirty Sunday worshiper. I've been looked down upon because my kids eat pork chops while we revere the living God and teach about Jewish roots. I am very comfortable teaching about the God of the Bible and the culture that he designed while recognizing it is not my culture. I am a pork-eating Gentile, a crawfish-eating Gentile. The Sabbath is holy unto the Lord. The Sabbath is the seventh day. But I want to just quickly walk through with you seven instances where God did extraordinary things and required extraordinary things of people on the eighth day. So this is for all you Sunday lovers of God out there. I'm going to simply mention the scripture reference and tell you about it as we go in the interest of using our time wisely. In Exodus 22.30, all the firstborn male animals became dedicated to the Lord on the eighth day. In Leviticus 9.1, which we're reading right now, on the eighth day, God shows up in meets with Israel. He visibly appears to Israel on the eighth day. In Leviticus 12, 3, all Jewish boys were circumcised on the eighth 
day. In Leviticus 14, if you were a leper, on the eighth day is when your cleansing would come. If you're a leper, that's good news, isn't it? In Leviticus 15, whether male or female, if you were ceremonially unclean from any kind of discharge, on the eighth day, you would become clean again. In Leviticus 23, verses 36 through 39, we have the seventh feast. We have the Feast of Tabernacles. And it goes on for seven days. And then on the last and the greatest day of the feast, the eighth day, we have a holy convocation to the Lord. The one in which Jesus cried out, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. What day was it on? The eighth day. For number seven, in Numbers, the sixth chapter and tenth verse, on the eighth day, a Nazarite completed his vow. In the Bible, eight is the number of new beginning. I implore you, I encourage you, and I commend you. If you are a Saturday worshiper, Saturday is clearly the Jewish Sabbath. And the eighth day is a kind of new beginning that I fully intend to enjoy for the rest of my life. I say, why are you over this or that? We can enjoy both. Amen? Amen. On this eighth day in Leviticus 9.1. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burn offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect for a sin offering. I'm sorry. <laughs> Then say to the Israelites, verse 3, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. I understand clearly that when you are reading this passage, it's easy to get lost. I just got lost in the middle of only four sentences. I'd like to break it down for you in an expeditious but rich fashion. When we're talking about this, notice that the Aaronic priesthood, they have a bull calf as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. While the people, they don't have a bull calf, they have just a calf. They don't have a ram, they have a regular lamb. There are higher standards for those that purport... To be priest. But you are a nation of priests. We often like to see two different standards. For pastors, for clergy and for laity. But you are a nation of priests. You are no longer common. You are not vulgar. You are something that is holy to the Lord. Secondly, when you begin counting these things. A bull calf. A ram as a burnt offering, a male goat, a calf, a lamb, an ox, and a ram. Of course, we come up with seven. Could you sit there and think, how long did it take to kill the bull? I mean, it's one thing to have to butcher it. 
But then you're going to have to wash its insides. You're going to have to carry some of the yucky stuff from it outside the camp. You're going to have to prepare it and arrange it on an altar. You have to do this for seven animals. How bloody was that? How nasty was that? wonder what it cost. In this room, we probably have people with vehicles that range from $60,000 to a couple that I can clearly say are not worth more than six hundred. What if, to meet with the Lord today, you needed to cut your car in half and present it before Him? Well, those of you with $600 cars would still experience loss, but those of you with $60,000 cars would find a new church to meet. One of those churches where the pastor drives a $100,000 car and says, you can too if you just learn to pimp out the body of Christ like he does. What a waste, right? Who would cut their car? What a difficulty. How unnecessary. What a waste of time to do all of that. It's wasteful, unnecessary and illogical. Can you imagine the excuse mongering that would occur if all of us had to bring something, get knee deep in blood and guts to meet with God? And so you hear Christians say things like, you know, I'm glad that was then and this is now. We're in a new dispensation. We don't have to walk around beggars and poor all of the time. Look at the blessings of God. And they love to talk about the blessings. But what if the heart of God has not changed from this chapter through the end of the book? What if he requires not a lesser sacrifice to those who have been entrusted with so much, but a greater sacrifice? You know, if you really believed that you were going to meet with the Lord today, specifically for today the Lord will appear to you, what would that look like? Don't you? Is there anybody in here that if you were going to visibly see the glory of the Lord today would cut your car in half? I noticed that I hear people saying yes, but not one hand went up. Nobody jumped up and down and said, I want to be the first to do it. You know why? We've been conditioned our whole lives to the idea that God wants nothing from you. He's done everything for you, so we're a do-nothing body of Christ. We act as if it's all been done, nothing left to do. Well, was it all done in Paul's life? Or did he offer many sacrifices of obedience? Was it all done in Isaiah's life? Was it all done in any man of God's life in the Bible? Or did they have to carry through with sacrificial obedience to the very end? Oh, I'm glad that was then and not now. Because it allows me to be as comfortable as I want to be while laying claim to everything in the heavens. But what if it is now? Look at this beautiful verse, 5. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. They took the things Moses commanded, where? To the front. We are teaching almost every Sunday in some popular church then it doesn't matter how you come to the Lord as long as you come. That you can come as you are and leave just as you came. How did they come to the Lord? They led with obedience to the last thing he told them to do. 
Do you think that you can stand in the body of Christ having had the Lord give you a command, leave His command undone and stroll into His presence like nothing has happened? What monarch on the planet could you do that with? They took what Moses commanded and they put it in front of the meeting. You want to know why sometimes the Lord feels far from you? He's not far from you, but you are far from him because you did not do the last thing that he told you to do. I meet more Christians that clearly hear from God until it's difficult, and then they run off and do what they want to do and find new churches and new groups of people to hang around with so that nobody knows how incredibly unfaithful they are. Church, there are some things that the Bible says that are simply not an option. It starts with going. Missions is not an option for a special few. It is a mandate for the entire body of Christ. The question is not if we go, it's where do we go? How far do we go? To whom do we go? But your obedience affects their salvation. How can they hear if you don't go? I'm proud to say that this body is learning to go. Go to Romans 12.1. In fact, let's put them on a screen and you stay in Leviticus 9. You can take notes. Stay in Leviticus 9. Look at Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as... Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let me ask you. If you think it's difficult to cut your car in half, difficult to sell your house, if you think God would never want you to have to split up a bull and go through these steps, then you probably have also assumed that your act of worship is pleasing to the Lord because you say that it is. But let me ask, could, could they decide to go get a, uh, a crow, uh, a turtle, and an elephant and offer those as sacrifices? Why not? Why couldn't they pick anything that they wanted to do? Because the Lord told them specifically what he wanted them to do. Can I tell you, very often we have men that God will not approve of offering right sacrifice, and that sacrifice becomes wrong because God does not approve of the rest of their life. And other times we have men that have received the approval of God, but through ignorance they're offering sacrifices that are wrong. All you have to do is read the second chapter of Haggai, and you find out that a man who has unclean meat on him does not make that meat clean. And a man who has clean meat cannot make somebody else's unclean. It it doesn't transfer in that way. There is the holy and the common. Can you say holy? Holy. Can you say common? common? Is your sacrifice holy or common? Does it look exactly like everybody else's? Have you decided that because when you compare yourself with yourself, you're doing pretty good, that your sacrifice is pleasing to God? What if it's not? How about Romans 15, 16? Keep your finger in Leviticus. We're going to work right back to it. Go to 15, 15, and then we'll read. See, I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again. 
because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty. Somebody say priestly. Priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Before I read the rest of this, the Apostle Paul was not a Levitical priest. The Apostle Paul descended from the tribe of Benjamin. But he calls himself a priest. He says what he's doing is a priestly duty. And why? So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul's duty was to inspect the sacrifice and make sure that it was acceptable to God. Can you imagine that you cut your car in half, that you burned your house to the ground as a burnt offering, and you offered one of your children as a lifetime servant in the temple and then found out that was not what God prescribed? How would you feel? The same way as many congregations are going to feel when they face the judgment of God and find out that their, their offering was never acceptable to the Lord, never something that he asked for, never something that his word declares. It simply benefited their pastors. Church, you have a duty to the living God to make sure that your life could be categorized as a living sacrifice one that pleases him and one that is acceptable to him when's the last time you stopped and asked whether your level of obedience was something that was pleasing to him when's the last time you look back and said lord did i do well not just did i do it but did i do well the last thing that you told me to do how about this one ephesians 5 1 through 2 Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love motivated Jesus. Now, we often talk about a love for us, how much he loved us, and he would have died for just this one or just that one. Do you know who he loved more than any man? His father. And so he only did what his father said to do. He only uh, walked in obedience to the father. In fact, when men tried to steer him, he couldn't be steered by them. Told his own brothers, for you any time is right. See, the thing is, for your life to be a life of love, it has to first characterize a greater love for your heavenly father than any other person. Let me just bring that home for you. If you're waiting to obey God until your earthly family approves of you, you sin. If you are waiting to obey God until your relatives decide that it's okay for you to obey God, you have sinned. The rabbis of Jesus' day were very fond of saying... Your father brought you into this world, but your rabbi will teach you to enter into the next. Therefore, a man's love for his rabbi ought to be greater than that of his father. Those scriptures make us uncomfortable, but those are near direct quotes from Jesus who was quoting the other rabbis of his day. I'm very proud to say that in this church there are people that have had great sacrifice regarding their families. It's our desire that all men would be saved. 
that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth, but they will never come by you lowering the standard of God and going towards them. They will only come by you standing on the mountain of God and inviting them into His presence, which you now enjoy. Do you enjoy His presence, saints? People who are in the presence of God never lament the cost of being in the presence of God because they're in the presence of God. The ones who lament the cost are the ones that have not tasted of it. So to them, the price is too high. But to those of us that stand in the glory of God, what price could ever be too high? I have one more scripture on this subject, and it's Philippians 4 and verse 18. Philippians 4, 18. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. We find out through the Gospels that a widow giving a mite is acceptable to God, but a rich man giving out of his abundance is not acceptable to God. We find out in the letter to the Philippians that their offering was both acceptable and pleasing. Let me ask, is your level of physical obedience like Christ? Is it acceptable to God? Is it pleasing to God? Or if you let your pride keep you from doing what he said to do the moment he said to do it, is your level of financial sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to God? One of the great pains of this ministry is to see people spend their money on ministries that we know, we absolutely know, are out of line with the Word of God while they rob us. But the same thing happened in Paul's day. The very same thing. The churches that were the first to receive shared in ministry with him, and most did not. It's not my intention to be hard on us. It is my intention to communicate the absolute necessity of following the prescribed way to the very letter. Read with me verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, oh, by the way, let's read verse 6. You can't leave out verse 6. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord, what's it say? So that the glory of the Lord, what? Oh, say it louder. It may. Do you mean to tell me that if you do not obey, the glory of the Lord may not appear to you? You doing what he says to do affirms him as the king of your life. You don't feel the presence of God that you believe others are feeling. You don't feel the presence of God that you once enjoyed at some time in your life. Ask yourself. Does my level of obedience allow his presence in my life? Or have I barred him from interacting with me because I will not do what he says? The number of times that I meet Christians that are walking around with unforgiveness while they stand in the house of God wondering why their life is not as vibrant as it once was. The Bible doesn't say you have a choice whether or not you forgive. The number of times I meet Christians that were never baptized once they were born again. They were baptized at some other point in their life, but not when they were born again. And they don't know why. Look, I 
I mean, is that really necessary? Is it necessary to cut the bulls up? It's necessary to do exactly what God says. Well, I don't have a particular conviction about it. The word is supposed to shape your conviction. Your convictions do nothing to the word of God. You better decide whether or not the word is any common book or it is God's book for your life. The moment that I realized that I had in fact been born again, I grabbed Matthew P. Rowe by the shirt and said, baptize me now. He said, can we do that? I said, we're about to. I did not want to spend one more minute disobedient to the Lord. Not one. I said, but how will my parents feel? They were there at my previous baptism. This is between me and God. I love the Lord more than I love my parents. I love the Lord more than I love my own children. I love the Lord more than all of you. And I love you a great deal. If your love for the Lord is not greater than your love for everyone else, you are fooling yourself. You cannot be in the kingdom. I'll do it as long as everybody approves of it. The gospel never would have moved anywhere on the planet. I meant to read verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice for your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them. I think that the reason that we have so many problems in the body of Christ today is that ministers are attempting to help everyone else with their burden of sin. When the minister himself has never become obedient to what the Lord said. He chose a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life of prestige. It's actually making money off of God's name. Using the Bible as a shovel to dig and earn money with. This turns out pastors who promise people freedom but actually make them slaves of depravity. That's why whole churches are completely given over to sensual things. And everybody kind of winks and nods. Church, it is possible to be holy, but it starts with doing what God said to do. Say it with me, up front. See, they brought those sacrifices up front to the tent of meeting. Sometimes you're letting problems from 10 years ago keep you from being obedient to God today. How about we worry about today's obedience today and we'll start fixing 10-year-ago problems tomorrow. But it starts with you doing today what God has said for you to do. How long have you put off obedience to Him because of something in your past? You cannot do it. The moment He speaks, you obey Period. Every moment that goes by after that, if the feeling fades, it ought to be the scariest thing in the world to you. Because they may have decided to stop dealing with you altogether. Verse 16 is an amazing verse. I'm going to skip 8 through 15 because I'm going to be true to my word. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. The prescribed way. He didn't offer it in the way that seemed best to him. He didn't hold a council and ask if the other ecumenical leaders were in approval of him doing it this way. He did it in the way that God said to him. You know, I can live with you disregarding what I say. It bothers me more when you disregard what these pastors say. But when out of your own mouth you declare that God has told you something and then the next week you do something entirely different... How can you escape the judgment of God? 
Once God has made clear to you what you must do, it is no longer an option. It's not. Let's talk about this prescribed way for just a moment. In Matthew 3, 13 through 17, let us go there. Say there when you were there. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from the Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. If it was proper for Jesus to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, do you really think that you don't have to be? Well, the thing is, Pastor, I was baptized when I was a baby. Let's examine that kind of notion. Turn with me to Mark 16. Actually, let's put them on the screen. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized, did you believe when you were a baby? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. No amount of gerrymandering to this verse can make it say anything other than what it says. What is the order? We believe and are baptized. Well, pastor, the thief on the cross was never baptized. If you get crucified between here and the baptismal water, we will give you a papal pardon. But show me examples of people in the Bible that simply went, I know it's the prescribed way, but, you know, it's not socially expedient. I'm scared I'll upset my mom. I'm scared auntie will be upset with me. It's not okay. And anybody that insinuates that you've got all the time in the world, you want to make this decision. No, the moment you know the good that you ought to do and you hesitate, you are sinning. And just so that you know, I don't get a special royalty check somehow or another every time somebody goes in the water. I don't report my numbers to Springfield, Missouri. Okay? I'm interested in your life being an acceptable offering to the Lord. Well... I suppose we could take eight scriptures from Acts, but instead I'm going to name them for you and tell you about them and you can research them. Eight scriptures from Acts. Beginning in Acts 2.38, at Pentecost, 3,000 people believed and then were baptized. They didn't get baptized and then later be transformed. They were believing to the point of regeneration and then they were baptized. In Acts 8.12, we're in Samaria. They believed and then were baptized. In Acts 8.38, we have an Ethiopian eunuch. After hearing the scripture, he believes and is baptized. In Acts 10.47-48, Cornelius' house, who is already in relationship with the Lord, hears the word that Peter preaches. They believe, are baptized in the Holy Ghost, and then baptized in water. There is no exception, period, to this rule. By the time you get to Acts 16, 15, Lydia and all who are in her house believe and are baptized. In Acts 16, 38, we have a Macedonian man who believes and his whole family is baptized. In Acts 18, 8, a man named Crispus who had formerly been a synagogue ruler Are we really going to say that he was not a believer? 
But once he hears the good news about Jesus and he becomes a regenerate believer, he is baptized and many Corinthians along with him. In Acts 22, 16, let's put this one on the screen. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Listen, does anybody know who said that? Jesus Christ said that to the Apostle Paul. It's not recorded in Acts 9 during his testimony, but when he recounts his testimony in Acts 22, 16, he says, this is what the Lord said to him. He was, How many excuses could he have? Well, Lord, what do you mean get up and be baptized? Wash your, you're the one knocked me down. Lord, I might have a problem finding that house. I'm blind. Lord, I, I, I don't know how I'm even going to get there. There could have been a billion. I don't know what will happen with my job. Presuming that Paul was like every other Jewish man and married, I don't know how my wife will, will deal with it. Lord, I don't know what it will cost. The Lord said to him, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. So forgive me if I won't pray with you about whether or not you should be baptized. Forgive me if I won't sit and deliberate it like it's difficult. The Lord Jesus Christ said, what are you waiting for? There's one man that did me more harm than any other man in my entire life. And you know what? 30 some odd years into the kingdom, never been baptized. That's an amazing thing. So why weren't you baptized? By the way, he's still trying to minister somewhere on about his third marriage. Why weren't you baptized? Well, after I got out of Bible school, it just seemed like, you know, I didn't need to go back and do that. And then when I became a minister, it was kind of, I mean, it's awkward. It's like, I'm the one baptizing. I don't, I don't need to. And on and on and on. You know, a little bit of compromise always leads you to more than you wanted to be involved in. Let's look at verses 17 through 22 and see if we can bring this to an end and a beautiful point. Because there's a collision with God that needs to happen today. A beautiful one. The reason they sacrificed the bulls was because the Lord was going to appear to them that day. The reason they brought it all with them to the tent of meeting in front of them is because the glory of the Lord would rest on them that day. We sing songs about the fire of God falling. be interesting to see what happened to each one of you if the fire of God did fall in this room. Some, it would be an amazing thing. Others, you might not exist the moment that it fell. Fire of God's an interesting thing. It's like the Word of God. It brings life to some and death to others. It depends on whether or not you are willing to be obedient to Him. In verses 17 through 22, we see this. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a fellowship offering for the people. His, son, his sons handed him the blood. Say handed. handed. The what? Blood. And he sprinkled it against the altar on all sides. But the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail and the layer of fat, the kidneys and the covering of the liver, these he laid on the breast and then Aaron burned up the fat on the altar. Aaron waved the breast and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering as Moses commanded. Have you considered how incredibly bloody this was? Yeah. 
Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. He lifted his hands towards whom? His hands that had been covered with blood. Now washed and clean because the sacrifice of obedience has been made. And he raises them for the people to see. Clean and new. You know what baptism is? It's a sign that you are making the necessary sacrifice in your life to be considered acceptable to God, pleasing to Him. No matter how bloody, no matter how difficult, you will not delay. You do exactly what He says to do when He says to do it. And after you come out of that water, you are holding up a clean, resurrected life that says, my life is no longer under my control. You know who did that for us first? Jesus Christ. Let's take a single scripture out of Acts 4.10 and put it on the screen. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus Christ, a bloodied-handed atonement on a cross... His act of obedience, a fragrant offering, acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, plunged into the grave and brought out no longer bloody. He is redeemed. Baptism is a picture of the resurrection power that overrides your will for the glory of God. Too long have people claimed to love the Lord while what they really love is their own self-governance. I do not pray for people to decide to be baptized. I tell people to obey what God says, period. And if you can't do it in this most simple area, then what must the rest of your life look like? Some need to be baptized today. Galatians 2.20 teaches us this in a slightly different way. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Let's pause on that for a minute. What in your life shows that it's not your life anymore? Maybe baptism was the initial step like the breaking of water when a child is born. What in your life today jumps out there and says, I no longer live? You know what? People act about missions like, oh, it's an exotic, amazing experience. You had not been on missions with us. Most of the places we go, you are lucky to survive. Amen, Steve? Amen. By the way, any of you want to sleep in somebody else's bed for the next month? Any of you want to preach in different languages three meetings a day for the next 25 days? And you pay to, to go have the opportunity to do it? I do. <laughs> These young men that are going to India... They will sleep on dirt floors. They will not see an air conditioner the entire time they're there. The temperature when they land will be 115 degrees, and the smell over every body of water there is worse than a dead body. Oh, you know, well, what in your life shows that you no longer live, but the Lord is living in you? How much of your treasure are you sacrificing? How much of your comfort? How much of your time? How much of your self 
governance. Do you still go where you like, when you like, and do what you like and call it all pleasing to the Lord? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me that the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Does it take serious trust, not minor trust, not intellectual assent, serious trust just to get you from here to tomorrow this time because it's not your life anymore and the things He's asked you to do are so far beyond you that it'll take His strength to get you there? The idea that there are somehow different classifications of Christianity is silly. This statement's either true about your life or you stand in disobedience or outside the body of Christ altogether. There, there is no other place. Why did we read Leviticus 9 at all? Because I wanted with all of my heart to get to the 23rd verse. Actually, I want to finish the 22nd. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed him. His bloody hands now made pure. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he... He completed his act of obedience. Now it's their turn. Jesus Christ has stepped down from the cross. He has completed his act of obedience. He stepped down, and you know what he's waiting for you to do? Step up. You cannot sit in complacency, knowing that he has called you to be obedient to things and say, one day I will. How many days have you not already? You can't sit and say, well, when this happens, I will. If you want to meet with God, you better obey the last thing that he told you to do and do it right now. Now, one terrible thing about hearing a message like this, I've left you no room. I'm hunting for your obedience. Not because I don't love you, it's because I do. I do not want to stand before the king the priest who is responsible for the offering and have given him diseased and blemished sacrifices. That happens every time a pastor looks the other way. Says, oh, I know. I'm sure he'll make an exception for you. Don't you think he's worthy of your very best? Verse 23, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. What happened? Three times in this chapter, the glory of the Lord is promised. A visible, tangible feeling from God is promised. And all that was asked was that they sacrifice what God said. You want to meet with the Lord? It begins by obedience and it's always sacrificial. Period. So what has he told you to do? Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Put 1 Kings 18.26 on the screen. Justin, would you come here? Nick, would you come here? Buddy, would you come here? 18.26. Y'all just take a seat on the altar. 
So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal answered us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. How long have you been offering the wrong sacrifices and had no answer from the Lord? You know what Elijah's response to them was? Elijah's response was, How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, get to serving him. If we would quit equivocating, the world would quickly see that we're a people that belong to the Lord. We're going to ask fire to fall in this room. How did fire falling turn out for Elijah? Pretty darn well. How did it turn out for the followers of Baal? Not all that good. The fire fell in number 1635, and you know what it did? It burned up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They thought that their offering would be just as good as anybody else's. The fire fell in 1 Samuel 6. It wasn't a visible fire, but dealing with the ark of the Lord, 70 people died because they looked inside when God had said not to. In 2 Samuel 6, the presence of the Lord killed Uzzah for his irreverent act. He reached out and tried to control the work of God. You know, the Older and Newer Testament are in perfect agreement. In Leviticus 9, the fire of God falls. Do you know what happens in Leviticus 10? Nadab and Abihu are struck dead. They're struck dead for doing it their own way. In Acts 2, the fire of God falls. People are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know what happens in Acts 5.5 and 5.10? Two people are struck dead for doing it their own way. Old and New Testament agree perfectly. Do you really think you can do it your own way and be guiltless? Look at the benefit of the fire falling and being right with God. They shouted for joy. The last part of Chronicles declares that David had fire fall on his altar. Uh, in Kings 8 and in the corresponding passage in Chronicles, fire fell on Solomon's offering. In every case, there was joy from the people. If fire falls in this room today, <laughs> when fire falls in this room today, Will you be joyful and liberated? Or will you be even more guilty because it stands as a testimony against you? Choose this day who you'll serve. Listen to the words of Jesus. Get up. Be baptized.